2: Good evening, everyone, and welcome to another edition of Ghost Chronicles International. I am Ron Cole with your host, the gatekeeper to the realm of the unknown, the unexplained, and the unbelievable, New England's own Van Helsink. And with me is maybe Richard, Eric Richard there. Okay, evidently not. So welcome to uh, Ghost Chronicles on Pararex, on TojiNet, Ghost Channel, Beyond. Anyways, we have a great show today, as we're going to talk about creatures of the night. We're going to talk about the creatures of the undead, werewolves, vampires, and whatever else we can, we can ever dig up in the wop <laughs> mine of Mr. Robert Curran. Uh, Robert, you there?
3: How are you, Ron?
2: Very good, and Richard is with us now, too. Only just! Hi, Hi there! <laughs> And uh, for those who don't know Mr. No, Mr. Uh, Bob Curran, he is an author of uh, several books, including Werewolves, Vampires, and the Encyclopedia of the Undead. So, I mean, how did you ever get into doing books on strange creatures, Mr. Curran?
3: Well, and it's Bob, by the way. You oh, can by ca- the way, you can wait, call wait, me with
2: Bob. I just noticed it was Doctor.
3: Uh, yes, uh, don't tell too many people. Uh, uh, I might start asking for a fee. Um, <laughs> however, um, you asked me how I got into this. Uh, I grew up in a very remote part of Northern Ireland. I'm speaking to you from Northern Ireland tonight. Um, but I grew up in a very remote part of Northern Ireland uh, where superstition was still very strong. Now, the First job that I had whenever I left school was as a grave digger. Really? Uh, yeah, <laughs> I worked as a I worked as a grave digger. Now we did a thing. I don't know whether you have it in the states or not. I, I suspect you don't, which was called breaking graves. Now that meant that uh, you were working in places like the mountain parishes, and uh, you where burying space was at a premium. And when uh, you ran out of graves, you went to the aplatment book and checked uh, if there'd been any uh, burials in a certain grave for a hundred years. The grave had to be unmarked. And uh, if that, you were entitled to open it and use it for a fresh burial. Really? So that's what I did. I, I opened these graves and... Uh, you got off so you dug up all sorts of things, but normally you dug up bits and pieces of coffins, and uh once I dug up a coffin lid, it was the only time I was ever truly scared uh I dug up a coffin lid now the coffin lid the in uh, must have been from a very well to do person because um the inside was lined. But the lining had been torn away, and the marks of the fingers were uh, oh. cut into the wood and dried blood and stuff like that. Now, that really scared me at that time, because whoever had been buried there had been buried alive. And that was not unusual, Ron.
2: No, it, it, yeah, it was pretty common, actually. The, we it, it,
3: it truly was, because yeah. not so long ago, I was in a, in a large house and there was a bell hanging, and that was connected to the family vault. Yeah. And if people came, up, uh, came to in the family vault and had been buried alive with catalepsies or wounds or whatever, uh, they could ring the bell, and people would know there was somebody down there. Mm-hmm. Hence the, and that was quite common, because hence the expression saved by the bell, or dead ringer. Uh,
4: oh, in yes. <laughs>
3: common parlance uh and it was not unusual because people went into f effects of what were what was known as catalepsy and uh their pulse slowed down very slow, and their breathing became so shallow that it barely registered. So I suppose that uh, that sort of experience and knowing these sort of things and uh, being growing up in a superstitious area where people still believed in ghosts and people still believed in fairies and stuff like that, I'm growing. If you could see me, Ron, you would know by the grey in my beard that that wasn't yesterday. (laughs) So, so we're. we're looking at um, the, the late 1940s, the early 1950s. So that was a time uh, when we were coming uh, coming out of war uh, and things like that. And, and people, there were still pockets in Ireland, and I suppose in other places, which was still very, very remote. And uh, I suppose that gave me... The sort of grounding in that, Uh, and later on, I became interested in what other people believed, and I grew up among folk tales, and so I began to listen to folk tales from other countries, and those common threads, and that interested me, and the supernatural, because the supernatural was very much a part of our lives back in those days, um, stuck with me. So I suppose that's where it all comes from. It all was coalesce together into these books?
2: Now, we actually got a... a I just completed a book of my own. It's coming out in September. And it's, it's ghost stories from around the world. And, it, and one of the stories that uh, was in England, I believe it was, and they talked about grave robbers and stuff, and I guess it was pretty common. Uh, but they, they, did, they used to station people in the graveyards at night where they would watch for... Uh, bell ringers, if if someone was buried alive, and also to to uh, uh, prevent grave robbers, and, and that was actually called the night shift. And that's where we've absolutely,
3: gotta... or the graveyard shift. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. That, uh, that's absolutely true. Uh, and uh, where I was brought up, there was what was called a watch house on the edge of the graveyard, and uh, the family of somebody who was buried, who uh, who may have been well to do, and buried in their finery. Like or Richard. Life. Uh, like oh, Richard. Uh, I, I mean, I, I, I'm i sure Richard looks well in his finery. I can't see him, but he's probably in his silks and Whether I and look brocades. well in the
4: coffin is a different matter, isn't it? <laughs>
3: <laughs> I, I I thought of you, Richard, in your silks and brocades and things like that.
4: Well, uh, uh, that you. is
3: quite true. A um, uh, 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 sort of the dilettante look. Uh, but, um, the... Uh, the, the watch house, and, uh, and people stayed there. The family stayed there for seven nights, after which it was considered that uh, the resurrectionists, uh, these were grave robbers, um, uh, also known as sack up men, because even the bodies could be used. Uh, back in London, and presumably, Ron, you, you, you've done stuff on this, right, uh, in it? London and in Dublin... Um, uh, in the 17 and 1800s, uh, people were interested in obtaining fresh bodies whenever medicine was in its infancy. China. And uh, so there was a lucrative trade in places like London, uh, Dublin, and particularly Edinburgh um, for fresh bodies which were dug up, and these turned up in the Institutes of Surgeons, and they used these for experimental purposes and for research. Um, They were only allowed something like three or four bodies of hanged criminals every year, which was not uh, enough for their purposes for, let's say, demonstration and and research. So they bought them from the resurrectionists, the sack-em-up men, or the body snatchers. And uh, these guys went around and dug up corpses and sold them. Uh, like, but uh, certainly in my part of the world there were stories of people who were buried in their finery and were dug up and uh, they tried to prize rings off their fingers and the people set up because they'd, been, uh, they'd actually been buried alive. And oh. there is a very famous scroll in St. Giles and Cripplegate in London of a woman called uh, Constance Whitney, um, who uh, a sexton tried to uh, prize a ring off her finger when uh, they thought she was dead, and she suddenly sat up because she'd been in a swoon and uh, just cataleptic and uh, sat up. and uh, She continued, and the sexton cleared out, <laughs> as you would imagine, and was later arrested. Um, but she lived uh, for about 20 or 30 years afterwards. And I vaguely knew a woman who had been pronounced dead and uh, had come to again. Uh, Somebody had noticed the fluttering of the eyes whenever they were putting her in a coffin and had uh, revived her. And she had continued to live, and she lived for, once again, another 20 or 25 years
2: now it's really funny because I remember one case in there where the these two gentlemen decided not to uh, wait for people to die and they started bumping them off the Sulcadoras. That's a,
4: a famous yeah. case in, in your neck of the woods, Richard. Right? Yeah, Burke and Hare, I think I believe in, in Edinburgh. Yeah, yeah,
3: absolutely. Uh, both of whom were Irish. Um I was,
4: was gonna say anything, you know,
2: I am trying to keep good <laughs> diplomatic relations
3: here, you know. <laughs> Absolutely. Um uh William Burke, uh who was uh, the the one of the two who was executed, um uh and they operated in Edinburgh, they had come to work on uh the Caledonian uh, sorry, the Caledonian canal. And um well, the ship can and the big ship canal. And um, Hare was uh, running a rooming house and they had taken Birkin and his lodger. And um, these guys decided that uh, they would not wait to, or, or that uh, going about digging up bodies was a bit beneath them, so they began to uh, bump off some of the people who were staying there. Mm-hmm. Uh, which was uh, which was easy enough because uh, in Edinburgh, where they were living, uh, there was a lot of poverty. There was a lot of uh, transients, as I said. The, the ship canal uh, was there, and people were coming and going all the time. There was a great deal of poverty, uh, and people died, possibly without anybody to mourn them, and possibly died in, uh, in, in corners of yards and uh, things so like sad. that. Uh, so... Um, they made a look uh, they made a a lucrative um business out of it. They sold to a gentleman uh, in the Edinburgh College of Surgeons called uh dr Robert Knox and uh, the old um poem is uh, um, uh up uh, up the close and down the stair bend the back of Burke and hare uh Burks the butcher uh hare's uh, the thief, Knox is the boy that Buys the beef, oh, wow so, so uh, that's, that that's I was known in Edinburgh folk crime uh they they were caught whenever uh, one of them uh, one of their um victims wouldn't lay down and drew attention to them, so they were arrested hare turned queen uh, king's evidence or queen's evidence as it was at the time and uh, against Burke, and Burke was hanged, uh, Hare disappeared.
4: He was held in prison for a while. Sorry? I believe they dissected him as well, didn't they? Oh, they
3: did. Yes, they did. That was uh, under the Murder Act uh, of the 1700s. Mm,
4: Absolutely right, sir. Uh,
3: Under the Murder Act of the, I think it was the 1750s, um, Yes, uh, murderers and criminals were, uh, could be dissected. Uh, oh, so uh, you finished up on the dissection table? That's right. Wow. apropos wasn't it? And, of course, uh, 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 it, 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 was, uh, it was terrible, uh, particularly at Newgate, and I'm sitting here looking at the Newgate calendar, and um, which high women and murderers and, uh, were liable to dissection, Now, that was an awful thing, particularly among uh, vaguely Christian people, because it was believed that uh, whenever the great day of judgment came, you had to rise completely whole and meet your maker. And uh, you couldn't do that if you were cut up in pieces.
4: There you go. Ronald, you you see where we're coming from? He's singing from the same hymn sheet as me. Really? Really? Yeah, and you know, a, know about yeah, there's a phrase that yeah, people have to remember called laid to rest, and you need to be laid to rest and you need to be whole. Um, hence the fact dissection, beheadings, and all those sort of things, people believe that they'd go to hell, and so they're still around.
3: Uh, th- uh, that's right, or they would not be allowed into either heaven or hell because they weren't whole. So they would that's be sort of lost in limbo for eternity and would not meet their loved ones on the other side
4: and so these people believed it didn't they Rob in those days That's the they thing. did they it, was, it was part did. of and the culture um, hence uh, the fact that the, the people were sitting on the graves stopping their loved ones from being dug up and, and dissected because they believed it would send them to hell or, or, or to limbo
3: that was exactly right uh, you had to be whole and, uh, and in full body to meet your maker on the great day of judgment
4: and do you realize that's why even to this day it is still difficult in this country and probably in other, other countries as well to get um, donors for body parts?
3: I would think that is the case. Uh, and uh, I would think that it is the case, uh, I know certainly over here in Ireland, it is a case where um, people are even frightened of giving away things like kidneys or... Really? Uh, Oh, are yeah. are uh, carrying a donor card because yeah. they may not get into the kingdom
4: of heaven. Exactly, but do, do they not realize that when someone has an or, what about an amputee <laughs> or or someone I, that
3: I, I, I literally don't know. I mean, but I do know that if you willingly give away part of your body or if part of your body is taken or or whatever. Yeah. Um, uh, it is still a belief in some fundamentalist churches here, but yeah. you will not get into heaven.
2: And, a Jewish Jew- faith. Uh, my grandmother. It? My grandmother was a uh, diabetic, and she lost her her legs, and they buried her legs uh, before her body.
3: Yeah, <laughs> and, uh, oh, and I in mean, cases, you, you you could bury them together. But uh, literally, I don't know what, what the position would be. Uh, I have actually left a lot of my uh, internal organs to medical science. So, well done. Uh, uh, there's no hope of me getting in. No,
4: you're, you're, you're destined to burn, I'm afraid. But you do know that when they, they executed King Charles I in 1649, after they chopped his head off, they actually stitched his head back on
3: that is true because he was the king. They uh, they beheaded him in January 1649, and yep. uh, in, at the beginning of February they uh, stitched his head
4: back on again. So that because although he was, although just, he, was the, he was God's anointed on this planet, they, they wanted to execute him, but they didn't want to send him to hell. That's right. Because, Unbelievable. Because,
3: uh, and, there, on, there was still the old, uh, the old belief, that even among the Puritans, of the divine right. Of
4: Correct. And when they dug up Oliver Cromwell, three months after he was dead, sorry, three years after he was dead,
0: He's they dead. took
4: his body to Westminster Hall, put him on trial, and, and uh, put, tried him for regicide, which is killing the king, and uh-huh. beheaded him.
3: They did indeed.
4: They, they wanted to get him, they want, although he had been dead for three years, they thought they may well get him in, they may well stop him going through the pearly gates.
3: The other thing which they did in, at the end of the 800s was yep. they dug up a pope and put him on trial for witchcraft no. uh, and broke uh, the first two of his fingers of his right hand. That was Pope Formosus. And uh, they bro- broke the first two fingers of his right hand, where, uh, which he would give the blessing, and that was enough to send him to hell.
4: <laughs> <laughs> didn't know that
3: one
2: Thank oh, you they, that,
3: oh, they, they, they actually uh, The famous Synod Horrenda Or Cadaver Synod Which was about 897 uh, uh, For most uh, Another Pope Stephen the 6th Or Stephen the 7th um, The Vatican has Problems with its uh, Stephens Because Stephen the 2nd Was probably dead when he reigned uh, He reigned for 3 <laughs> days and was probably dead all the time, <laughs> um, but uh, so it could be Stephen the sixth or Stephen the seventh. Depending on uh, whether a bit whether like his vows or not. Uh, so he he was mad. So he dug Formosus up, placed, dressed him in full pontificals, uh, placed him on trial, and had a, a conclave of cardinals come and uh, had a cardinal answer as if Formosus was answering, and he pleaded guilty to everything. So uh, they, um, and there's a very famous picture by Jean-Paul Lorrain in uh, the Bibliothèque in France, uh, which um, depicts uh, the trial of Pope Formosus. They found him guilty, they dumped his body in the Tiber, but it was dug up and reburied uh, by a hermit, and then Theodore II, who was a couple of popes later, forgave him. And oh. um, he was he was reburied in St. Peter's.
4: Go. tell me, Rob, what what had he done?
3: Uh, he had done well. The, uh, a lot of the stuff was uh, allegedly political. He had been uh, um, uh, um, playing about with various political factions. Um, right. Rome uh, at that time was subject to all sorts of incursions and, and and the papal lands.
4: Barbarians attacking them and what uh, I mean.
3: And he had been dealing with them and uh, had l- made alliances and stuff like that. So a lot of it was political, but a lot of it was uh, acting as if he was po- he, he had been excommunicated at one, at one time. He had been excommunicated by John VIII when, right. uh, when, uh, whenever he was uh, Bishop of Porto. Um, right. But, but uh, he had been reinstated by Marinus the First. Uh, but um, he was also accused of making a speculum vitae, a living mirror, which was a great and uh, which uh, required a great deal of magic. And oh, in right. that he had, tra- he had trapped a demon.
4: Now wow. nobody
3: knows what became of the mirror. His uh, successor was, I think, Boniface the Sixth. Yeah. only ran for something like 16 days, and yeah. uh, Boniface had the mirror removed to the ends of the earth. Now, nobody knows where that is, so it's lying somewhere today with the demons oh, still
4: find it. Oh, there you are. <laughs> <laughs> there uh, you are.
2: Now, it's interesting you, that you bring up uh, demons, uh, Bob, because uh, I know in your book you talk a little bit about one of my favorite subjects, which is Dybbuk's. Yep. It's
3: the Jewish Demons.
2: Right. Um, hey, I've never
3: um, heard of this. The, uh, the Day Book uh, is um, the um, most famous guy on this was possibly the 16th century sort of mystical guy from northern Palestine who was Isaac Luria uh, who um, Dealt, uh, was supposedly a great exorcist uh, and who dealt with demons and who wrote on demons. And some of his work was supposed to inspire the um, maral of, of Prague uh, around the, uh, slightly later um, uh, who created the golem, uh, the great creature of clay um, uh, which was powered by demonic forces, which only uh, a, a great rabbi could control. So you, you have um, the idea of this great shambling figure. In uh, uh, fact, the Maharal, uh, Rabbi Judah ben Low, um lost control of the golem and um, had to resort to um, trapping it. Uh, now, in order to put the uh, to create life in the golem, you had to use a, a a sacred word from the Zohar, the book of splendor, which was the real secret book of the Kabbalah. Uh, right. Jewish, uh, Jewish legend or Jewish tradition was divided into three. You have uh, 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 the Torah, uh, which was uh, the um, Real books, uh, the books of Moses, which had been written, and this was the, the written law. The, mm-hmm. Then you had the Talmud, which was the spoken law and w- w- was a bit more esoteric. Then you had the Kabbalah, which was the secret law, uh, which would have been, had been given by Yahweh or Jehovah to uh, both Abraham and Moses. So you had all that tradition, and within that, uh, the book, there was the Book of Splendor, or the Zohar, uh, which, was, which contained uh, secret words which Yahweh or Jehovah had used to make man uh, from the dust of the earth. And uh, a, a skilled rabbi could do exactly the same. And the, the secret word, if I can tell it over the phone,
2: Oh,
4: my was God, M- can you really? This is good. I'm yeah. going to write this down. Yeah, me too. Uh, <laughs> go on, Ron, get the pen ready.
3: <laughs> what the secret word was emeth, E-M-E-T-H, which meant life. Emeth. Uh, uh, and that was supposed to give the golem or the great figure life. And uh, But uh, there were other words which you would have to use to control it. Mm-hmm. Uh, if do we get those
2: to, as well? <laughs> 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 that would be kind of important, I think. <laughs> uh, well,
3: uh, that has to remain secret. Oh, <laughs> you know, that's okay. But, but, but I can give you the word um, uh, to uh, destroy the golem. There you go. Because, oh. because all you had to do was remove the letter E and you got the word meth, which was inert matter. So it reverted to inert matter. And then, uh, now, that could be written on the golem's forehead or it could be written on a, a clay tablet, which was placed in the golem's mouth. And that was how Rabbi Judah ben Lo tricked the golem. He made it spit the, the clay tablet out and was able to uh, wipe out the first letter. And the, the golem reverted to uh, clay. But uh, the preparation, but it was not only right, uh, the word which was done. There had to be a ritual uh, to create the golem. So, um, and if he were not careful, that, uh, returning to what we were talking about, the book could uh, come into the golem, and you couldn't control it at all. Even great rabbis couldn't control it. And this is what Isaac Luria was talking about.
2: Well, Bob, you're going to have to hold that thought because we have to take a break right now. You are listening to Ghost Ghost Chronicles International with Richard Felix and Ron Kolick. And our very special guest is Dr. Bob Cullen. And we'll be right back after the following messages on TojiNet and Pararex.
1: That's weird welcome to talking net radio with a cutting-edge your success with Erin Clink Thursday mornings at 9, 8 central. Part of the Her Insight Network on toginet.com. Celebrate your success will focus on women in business, working from home, and how to manage your business and your family. Did you know that 6% of the women that make over $100,000 in the United States are in direct sales? They are. And Erin is here to help you get there. Plus, there are many different levels of success, too. And she's going to investigate those different ways with you so you can achieve all levels of success through different businesses. She knows she's been blessed as a wife and a mother of four. And she started her direct sales business nine years ago. And in the last four and a half years, Erin built up her business with the company to be second in the nation for sales and number one in the nation for recruiting for three years in a row. For information on Aaron and her success and her own company and her book called Celebrate Your Success, go to clinksconsulting.com. Then, get set to celebrate your success with Aaron Clink Thursday mornings at 9, 8 a.m. Central, part of the Her Insight Network on toginet.com.
2: We are back. You are listening to Ghost Chronicles International on toginet.com, Ghost Channel Beyond. I am Ron Kolick. With me is Richard Felix, and our very special guest is Dr. Bob Curran. Uh, it's funny that you mentioned the Golem because I know that uh, Karen O'Keefe and Mozart Live just did their live thing from uh, Prague, which is one of the homes of the Golem.
3: Absolutely. Rabbi uh, Lowe was the Maharal, or uh, which was a special status, a special teacher, within Prague. And the most famous Golem story comes from Prague. Uh, and it is said that in one of the synagogues in Prague, somewhere in the attic up there, which is sealed off,
2: mm-hmm. the
3: golem is still lying. Waiting. Waiting. Oh. Anyways, we, we
2: didn't actually get com- completion of the Dybbuk, because... I right. Christian go ahead. Sorry, I
3: got sidetracked onto this.
2: That's no, okay, I do that all the time, but, but the, <laughs> uh, the, the, the div- divok uh, is a demon in, in the Jewish faith, but it's, it's different than the Christian uh, demon.
3: Well, in some, uh, in some cases, the devil uh, can draw out from uh, the uh, person to whom it attaches a lot of power, a bit like a vampire. Uh, so uh, in one of my books, and I'm just reaching it, uh, it down because it's sitting in front of me, uh, I have classed it as a kind of a vampire. Uh, and uh, it was uh, sort of from a Christian background that that began to emerge. Uh, the Dybbuk could attach itself to somebody and could draw the power almost by osmosis. So um, the, the, the Debuk was uh, a, a, a sort of like, almost like a vampire.
2: Yeah, we have a, a famous... Um... Uh, a case here called the Dybbuk Box, and it's very interesting because, uh, supposedly, it caused World War II, and it caused a lot, a lot of harm in the world, uh, and it was an attempt uh, to actually, um, what's the word, to trap a Dybbuk. Uh, so it was kind of interesting.
3: yeah. There was, uh, there were there were many attempts, and, uh, and I was just looking uh, here at um, some of uh, the references which I which I'd looked up, um, and uh, there was uh, a notion among in Hebrew witchcraft that um, people and uh, the books and uh, creatures of the night could draw off power and energy from uh, those uh, who were uh, sleeping or who were resting. Uh, And, for example, uh, this could also be used by sorcerers. And uh, there is actually a reference in the Bible to this, in which when King David was very old, uh, and uh, it said now when David was old and covered in clothes and well stricken in years uh, they co- uh, they covered him with uh, blankets but he got no heat uh, so they brought a young lady to him and she warmed him uh, Abishag uh, the Shunammite uh, and they brought her to the king and the damsel was very fair and cherished the king and ministered to him Uh, and revived the king. Uh, That was how uh, old men uh, regained their youth, or or old sorcerers regained their youth. They lay with young women. Um, Does it work? uh, I haven't tried it recently. (laughs) (laughs) But but I think my (laughs) If young women wish to come up with me to me and try it out. Uh, well, well, in the
2: name of science, right? Give it a go.
3: In the name of research.
2: Yeah, absolutely. There oh. <laughs>
3: but But um, the uh, uh, debucks could uh, actually do the same. And there were the who could um, uh, sort of link with people. And put unclean thoughts into their head. Now you're talking about a dubic that could maybe start World War Two, mm-hmm. and we, ha- we have to be very careful because we don't want to give the impression that it was started by Hebrews. But uh, <laughs> that could, be, uh, yeah, that could be. Um, uh, it was part of Jewish belief that um, the books could start wars. For instance, uh, whenever King uh, King Saul uh, was troubled, he was uh, making war against King David, and uh, he he was supposed to have been troubled troubled by an unclean spirit or the book so uh the books were always about, and you had to be very careful because they could attach themselves to you either draw off your energy or affect your thoughts
2: right yeah. mm. now we you also uh i know you you wrote also a book on werewolves and uh yep, and recently I came across a uh an article on the famous case in France uh, where now they're saying it wasn't a werewolf, it was a serial killer. What are your thoughts on that? Now,
3: there, uh, there have been a number of cases in France. and France seems to be a very fertile ground for werewolf um, trials. Uh, The earliest werewolf trials go back uh, to the 1500s, in which you had um, people like Gilles Garnier during the 1570s. He was the hermit of St. Bono, uh, living uh, in the thickly wooded countryside of Armages near the town of Dole. Uh, Although he had originally supposedly come from Lyon, with his wife. Now, uh, he was a hermit, and he was very antisocial. And uh, people actually didn't like him. So whenever a large wolf began to attack um, uh, some children uh, near Dole and um, between uh, the village of Chastenoy um, in a place called La Poupée, which was a, a sort of a meadow, um, suspicion fell on Garnier. Yeah. Because he was one of these peripheral people, these people who lived on the very edges of society, and uh, was disliked, uh, and didn't conform to normal behavior. So you're getting people who are maybe strange in their ways, who are met, who have maybe even mental problems? Mm. Uh, people like that who are uh, being accused of dark motivations, being a, a witch, or a werewolf, or whatever. And uh, it is the way uh, it, it is because they are actually outside society. The other thing we think about uh, people like Garnier and the perhaps. Uh, families like the uh who were uh, tried around 1598, uh, or that they may well—and we—we're not a hundred percent sure of this—but we, uh, they may well have been uh, had cannibalistic traits, because okay. I suspect that cannibalism was much more widespread in even parts of Europe and, I suspect, in parts of America as well.
2: Really?
3: Uh, than, than than we formally suspect. Yeah? Mm-hmm. Uh, you think of it, Ron. <laughs> in remote areas where maybe the, the winters are hard, mm-hmm. or let's say in the forests, as Gilles Garnier lived, uh, which uh, and a number of these accusations occurred during the winter time when game was scarce and food might have been scarce. And if he didn't um, mix terribly well with people, where would he get his food? Uh, mm. And if there was no hunting, where would he get his food? You let, say live in America and, and you're living away up in the mountains, and the snow comes blocks off the mountain passes, and how do you get out? How do you get food? How, how do you hunt uh, whenever there are deep snow drifts. So if you're living in a small community and there's old people among them, uh, as we know has happened, uh, and we know this because it actually happened in Ireland in 18, uh, between 1845 and 1852 during the Great Irish Potato Famine, um, where old people died, and rather than, than bury them, they finished up in the stock pot and it therefore kept the community alive.
2: That's true. So there, I mean, even, even in the United States, I know that we had a wagon train that went out west and, and that is uh, documented. There
3: was it, indeed. Yes. There, uh, there was indeed uh, the, 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 the famous Donner uh, wagon train. Correct. Uh, which uh, uh, was making its way to California. And uh, got caught in a snowstorm in the mountains, and were uh, were uh, sort of closed in at a lake, um, and they survived by eating. Uh, as well as that, uh, in, uh, during the Revolutionary Wars um, in uh, in the northern states, into Canada, um, Captain Richard Rogers. Uh, raided the mission of San Francis de la Sal uh, and tried to get back uh, back into the United States and got lost in uh, in the mountains and his men tried to eat uh, each other a survivor turned up of Rogers's, um battalion uh, at one of the uh, at one of the forts carrying with him uh, a knapsack in which were the remains of some of his companions, which he'd been eating on for days.
4: Um, and it happened to that Argentinian uh, rugby club in the plane not that long ago, that didn't that? it? That's right. There was a rugby club uh, which crashed, uh, uh,
3: the plane crashed and crashed in the Andes. That's and they right. right survived by eating those that were dead. So,
4: bit yeah. uh, uh, I mean, of the fittest.
3: Uh, well, my brother used to have um, a book. My brother uh, is actually a minister. And uh, he had a book which uh, he showed me, which was written, it was a Christian book, um, written by an old uh, cannibal chieftain, and it was Great Men I Have Eaten, uh, (laughs) and I have become a Christian. And he said, do not, he says, either eat British Americans or Dutch, because they are far too stodgy. Uh, if, uh, if If you want good meat, he says, Uh, ate a Spanish or Italian because they are full of oil.
2: (laughs) Okay. There you go. So so
3: there's the recipe for today.
2: All right. right. Anyway, I I have a question from the chat room. Actually, it's from my my son. It's an email, excuse me. Uh, Yeah, go ahead. My son is a huge fan of yours. Uh, He absolutely loves all your books, and (laughs) he's read them probably a dozen times, which probably means he has no life, but that's besides the point. (laughs)
3: <laughs> I was going to say to him didn't get
2: but he asked me to ask you about the shoemaker of Silesia. Is that correct?
3: The, the shoemaker of Silesia was a great vampire. Um, the, the The shoemaker is supposed to have committed suicide, and uh, after that, uh, his um, appearance turned up. Uh, this... Uh, uh, this was around about, uh, as far as you can remember, about the, uh, the late 1500s, early 1600s. Uh, and uh, his appearance turned up from time to time. And people began to notice that uh, they were becoming weaker and uh, they were experiencing bad dreams and things like that. So it was assumed that the shoemaker was a vampire. Mm-hmm. and uh, I, I, I think they had to put a stake through them and uh, uh, burn them, which was uh, the way to deal, the only uh, real way to deal with a vampire. Uh, uh, you can stake them, but uh, it depends on where you are mm-hmm. uh, as to what type of wood you use, because let's say you're in Russia, you would use, let's say, you you would or... Uh, If you were in Scotland, you would use rowan wood. Um, Otherwise, uh, the stake is next to useless. Uh, So the only true way of getting rid of a vampire um, is to burn them. The stake will suspend them, uh, but uh, it will not kill them. And if the stake is removed, they're free again. So the only way to
4: get rid of them for good is actually
3: to burn them. um,
4: Rob, let let me stop. Let me stop you there for two seconds, because you you actually hit the nail on the head. You said this guy had actually committed suicide. And and correct Uh me if I'm I'm not wrong, but one of the ways of dealing with a suicide, who, of course, we believed would never rest, because they'd committed the worst crime against God, of course, self-murder, was to actually bury them at the crossroads with a wooden stake hammered through their heart. That's right.
3: And the reason for that... Yes, if uh, if the stake was removed and they got up, the the crossroads was crucial. They wouldn't yes. know which way to
4: go. Confuse them. Okay. But confuse they also them. had a flat stone over their face. Is that right?
3: Sorry, they um, have they a also
4: put a flat, a big stone over their face because a it was to stop them stone rising. Stone. You're
3: speaking. Face. You're speaking about Irish vampires here. They had um, the most famous of the Irish vampires. Uh, was Auertach who came, uh, um, who lived about the 500s. Now, right. I am sitting speaking to you about 11 miles from tax grave, Ooh. and that, there is still a big stone there, which is right. the capstone of a great sepulcher. Dr.
2: Cameron, we actually have a phone call. Do you want to take it?
3: I'll talk to whoever you want to put on.
2: Okay, let's see. Caller, you on? Yes, I'm on it. And what's this crap about me having no life? (laughs) Oops, it's my son. (laughs) Hey! Hi, Rob. (laughs) Rob, how How are you? Very well,
4: sir. Carry on, carry on.
0: Just wanted to uh, call in and set the record straight on that. And, uh, yes, your books are quite well written. And the amount of folklore and research that you've done is
3: absolutely incredible. Thank you very much. Yeah. Um, uh, we have uh, tried to do as much as we can. Uh, there's a couple of new books coming out, so uh, which I'm looking at uh, uh, other bits and pieces. So thank you very much for that.
2: Anything else there, Ron Jr.? Oh, well, I just wanted to uh, give you some
3: grief about that.
2: <laughs> I also, think you
3: have a life, Ron Jr. <laughs> <laughs> okay, what? <also, laughs>
0: I, was cut, I cut in as you were talking about different ways to kill vampires. As, yep. As, in New England, it would be cut out the heart and burn it.
3: Absolutely. Or, Mercy uh, Mercy Brown.
2: Which is not uh, far from us, actually. Yep. Sorry? This, she's not far from us. Her grave is not that far from us. Uh,
3: that, that, that's it's right. be the, uh, the, uh, the famous vampire woman of Rhode Island, uh, you have Mercy Brown. Nancy Um, Young Young. The last one was actually Nellie Vaughn, although they don't know whether she was a vampire or not Uh, She has a a strange um, inscription on her tombstone which says, I am watching and waiting for you Now that might be purely innocent, but uh, people have read all sorts of um, meanings into it Yeah, that would be consistent
0: with Uh, epitaph of that time period and the story goes there was a school teacher, librarian in Coventry Rhode Island that told his or her students that there was a vampire buried and the graveyard was on the same road they all went out and went looking for it, they saw that inscription deemed it vampire-y enough and hence Poinelli is now tagged as a vampire and they've actually had to remove
3: that headstone and keep it in storage because that's be more. absolutely true. Yeah, it was a school teacher who started that off in the late 1960s, uh, and um, they had to remove the headstone because Yankee Magazine did a, a great feature on it. In fact, I have a copy of the feature, uh, which was the words on Nelly's tombstone, and uh, they had to actually remove it. And it became a sort of cult. Yeah, people traveled all the way. It was a bit like Stull in Kansas, which is uh, the, the, the local sheriff had to give out 100-pound um, tickets um, for those who cruised around the, the graveyard at Emanuel Hill and Stull, which was supposed to be the gateway to hell.
2: Yeah, we have a lot of those
3: around the world. Well, uh, we do. I I was going to say that, of course, Stull isn't the gateway to hell. The gateway to hell is about 20 miles down the road from where I am. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Because there's a massive mound which is supposed to open on Halloween night, and all uh, people are supposed to be sucked in, and all sorts of ghastly things are
2: supposed to come out. So does it happen? I mean, you must certainly have been around there at that time, right? I ha-
3: I have been there, and I have never seen anything. Oh, God. Um, Amazing. <laughs> but, but maybe I, I was there on the wrong night. You never know.
2: Could be the daylight, <laughs> daylight savings thing, maybe messed everything up.
3: It could well be. It could well be. Uh, although it was so, whenever uh, the Pope, uh, John Paul II, uh, the story America, yeah. he actually asked for his plane to be diverted over Kansas. Mm-hmm. So you never know what's down there.
2: You know that that church was actually destroyed on uh, Good Friday.
3: It was, that's right, it was now simply a heap of rubble, Uh, it was was already a ruin, Mm -hmm. and they said that somewhere under the ruin there were a number of steps which led uh, down to um, the gates of hell, Uh, and I think that uh, uh, appeared on the cover of an album by a heavy metal band called Kill uh, uh, Overdrive or Urge Overdrive or something like that, uh, which was uh, simply called Stull. It was named after Sylvester Stull, actually. He was the postmaster there, and that is not a a corruption of Skull. a lot of people have said.
2: Correct. Yeah, and yeah. It's, it's, there's also a, a thing, it, it, there are more stairs going down than coming up. Uh,
3: oh, yes. Yeah. And once you start going down the stairs, you can never find your way back.
4: Right, there you go. So
3: there you are.
4: Yep, there's so much. Well, can I stop you and ask you what you think about um, black dogs and uh, how black dogs. black dogs.
3: Well, you see, the black dogs uh, were um, part of old Celtic mythology. Yeah. A great hero, for instance here in Ireland, placed uh the name c u in front of his name, which meant okay. hound uh, and and you get it in things like cahol uh the hound of Ulster yeah uh, about many uh, and the the notion of the wolf or the dog uh, 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 give great power sometimes supernatural power. A number of um, churchmen in England used the word wolf, W-U-L-F, as part of their name, and there actually was a bishop, Werewolf.
4: Uh, There
3: was also a couple of bishops, Wolfstan. Yes. um, Which means wolfstone. So uh, uh, the hound or the dog began to acquire a great deal of supernatural qualities attached to it. So you're getting the idea of the devil or the devil's hounds uh, and the notion of the hunt, the wild hunt which is yeah. common throughout Britain. Which is
4: very Viking, suspense. isn't it, really? Is that
3: right? It is, yes, uh, uh, and you're getting things like bar guests, which are yeah. um, uh, a, a dark dog or things like that. So... Uh, The Black Dog, we have here um, the idea of um, the Black Dog on Rathlin Island. And I was talking to some people who knew an old storyteller many years ago called Rose McCurdy, uh, who told about the devil walking around the island in the form of a dog and uh, the sparks dropping from its jaws. But you have... And parts of, let's say, Tennessee, and, and places like that, black booger dogs, which are the uh, the equivalent. And uh, there's a story from the uh, from East Tennessee in which a woman uh, had a very violent husband who had a pair of squeaky boots. Um, but he was an alcoholic, and he died. And later on, a dog came about the house uh, late at night and prowled around the house, and every time. Uh, it got below her bedroom window. She could hear the squeak of its boots. So it was actually her husband, and she had to get a preacher in to get rid of it. So uh, you have all these old stories about um, black booger dogs and, and uh, wolf men and things like that, which, which uh, all feed into the
4: old Celtic notion of uh, the great hound or the great dog. Mm. Wow. Tell me something, how much of this, I mean, basically what you've said about, you know, vampires, um, staked through the heart, but they committed suicide first, so they're not at rest, how much of it, I mean, obviously you've written lots of books on it, and and I get the, very much the impression that you are one hell of an authority on, on the whole damn thing. (laughs) Tell me, do you believe? Everybody asks me that question, (laughs) do you
3: believe these things exist? And the answer I will give you, which is the answer I give to uh, they say, do these things exist? And I say, I really don't know. And, uh, but it doesn't matter, that the more interesting question is, not whether or not these things exist. They may or they may not. But the question is, is why do we want to believe in them? Because we do want to believe in them. And what sort of deep um notion uh, or deep um, fulfillment does uh, that address or, or what sort of deep questions that we ask? Does uh, a belief in vampires, a belief in werewolves, or a belief in whatever address for us? Why do we need to believe in them? So it's not whether these creatures exist. Uh, As I say, they may or they may not. I have had no direct experience of any of them. My brother claims to have. But um, I come from a place where only one in a family can see ghosts in the supernatural. And I'm not that person. My brother may well be. But uh, the question which fascinates me more, because part of my degree is in psychology, uh, and that's what my, one of my doctorates is in, uh, is why would people wish to believe in them? And, and what does that tell us about ourselves? What tell, and does that tell us about our history? And uh, what does that tell us about our society?
4: Correct. Absolutely.
2: Yeah. Now, wait a minute. Don't we actually create these beings in our own minds? And therefore, exactly they, the they, they exist because we believe in them?
3: well i uh somebody said do you believe in uh do you believe in vampires and I say, "Well, if you want to believe in vampires you won't believe in vampires yeah vampires will exist for you yes. um I tend to be very uh if i can say this on the air I tend to be very skeptical i want to find out where the, where our ideas have come from i I want to find out what our ideas do uh for us um We may create them for ourselves, yes. But then you have to ask yourselves, why do you want to create these? Why do you want to believe in something which can come into your house at night and rip you to pieces? What does that... uh, With the vampire, very, very briefly, the the vampire addresses a very fundamental question. uh, Or rather, two very fundamental questions. One is, what would it be like to live forever? Uh, what would it be like not to die? Because death is the last great mystery. And what would it be like to be forever young? Is it a curse? Is it
2: not? We're going world to world will... hold that thought because we just about ran out of time. Oh,
3: no, that's okay.
2: So any quick thoughts? First of all, do you have a website or anything you want to give out?
3: The website is being built. But if people want to talk to me, they can contact me and ask me questions and tell me that I don't know what I'm talking about. <laughs> um... They can uh, find me on Dr. Bob Curran, D R B O B C U R I N, at uk, And I will talk to them if they're interesting.
2: If they're interesting. <laughs>
4: I'll
2: sure, be talking you. to you, Bob. Bob, we want, we want to thank you so much for coming on the show. It was certainly interesting. I'd love to have you back on again, especially when you I will be delighted
3: to come on whenever you want.
2: Uh, you would Especially, we have a, a decent hour for you, huh?
3: <laughs> That's no problem at
2: all. <laughs> all right, thank you so much. i right, talking um, to you Thank
3: I'm uh, goodbye to
2: you both. Yeah. Goodbye. Bye. Goodbye. Good night. Bye. God bless everyone. Guys, see you next week.
1: From goalies to ghosties, long legged beasties,
0: and things that go bump in the night, deliver us. Good Lord.